radio station, your radio station, our radio station, 91.3 FM and 95.8 FM stereo. So to Lelfiat. Voice of the Millennials. With Yasin Kipi. Igniting the youth. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the voice of the millennials with myself, Yasin Kipi. It's an interesting program this week, and I'm very honored and uh, you know really pleased uh, to, to, to meet uh, again and to have uh, Dr. Jasser Auda uh, with us um, at the Voice of the Cape. So um, that's a pleasure, and inshallah, we'll introduce and speak to him in just a bit about, of course, the IPSA Masters in Applied Islamic Thought as well as his understanding of the application of jurisprudence and fiqh within the 21st century today. Let, a little bit later on, inshallah, after Salatul Maghrib, we'll be speaking to Salman Bhatt from Islam 21C, a podcast based, I think, in the UK, uh, about contemporary uh, Muslim topics, particularly social topics. Uh, they recently interviewed uh, Professor Tariq Ramadan um, after you know a scandalous period. Uh, we want to speak to them about that and how they particularly uh, deal with uh, controversial topics. Um, as as an example for, for, for the wider Muslim community and media landscape. And then finally, we'll be speaking to Fahim uh, Rode Jackson about his Islamic callig- calligraphic workshops that will be taking place shortly, inshallah. But uh, we'll start off, of course, with Dr. Jasser. Assalamu alaikum to you. Welcome to the Voice of the Cape. Wa alaikum rahmatullah. Thank you. So me again. you've been here for, I think, a week or two with regards to the masses in applied Islamic thought. It's a, it's a, it's a new masses uh, in QF level nine, postgraduate specialization. Um, and uh, you've had, alhamdulillah, many people already applying and people in the program. Uh, but I believe that the, the actual application pr- um, process ends at the end of this month. Tell us about yeah. the program and, uh, you know, who should be uh, involved in it. Alhamdulillah. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to be back on this on program. Time. I'm back in South Africa and Cape Town, beautiful city and beautiful community, alhamdulillah. Uh, the program is titled a Master's in Applied Islamic Thought, and therefore it is about a branch of knowledge that is called Islamic Thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a chair of Maqasid Studies at IPSA, I really appreciate the government in South Africa approving the program with that name, uh, Applied Islamic Thought, because mm. normally it's Islamic theology, it's Islamic studies, Islamic history. But Islamic thought uh, is dynamic, um, and it is about a kind of thinking about issues in the reality that could be different from mainstream thinking, and actually could be different from quote-unquote secular thinking. It's actually thinking mm. through Islam about the reality, economics, politics, policy, health, uh, whatever it is that goes under what we call today al-fikri al-islami or the Islamic thought. And it is applied and therefore we require that each student when they write the thesis, which is the second year of the program, two years program, uh, in the second year we require the student to write uh, about an Islamic approach to something in the reality, an application of what they learn through the courses 
uh, in, in the reality. The reality does not only have to be a reality of a mosque or a madrasa, could be the reality of the society, mm-hmm. uh, issues of concern to the Muslim community or the wider community. On our research agenda, we have issues like poverty and racism in South Africa, issues like violence and so on, and what is Islamic and what is, um, how, how can Islam deal with this and contribute to the society in that sense. So we're excited, alhamdulillah, about the new program. And uh, alhamdulillah, we have uh, almost a couple dozen applicants so far, which is very good news, alhamdulillah. What does it mean uh, to be, I mean, Islamic, uh, applied Islamic thought at the mosque's level? What does that mean? At the master's level, it means that um, you study a particular issue um, very well uh, from, quote unquote, an Islamic point of view. And that requires what we call in the description of the program, multidisciplinarity. Uh, It's not just Mm -hmm. coming from the Islamic sources or the Islamic uh, literature that you learn, but you also learn and critique other literature so that you can come from a from a multidisciplinary perspective in dealing with the issues. So, for example, issues of economy, we really don't have a live Islamic economy anywhere in the world. We, yeah, we do have Islamic banks, we have Islamic companies, and these are great, but we don't have a whole country that runs in an Islamic way in terms of economy. Um, so, somebody who studied economics, and a couple of our students are from an economics background, We try to make them take an approach to economics that is Islamic uh, and so forth. Uh, Say the same about politics and medicine and management. Uh, It's a program that welcomes everybody. And of course, people with Sharia background or Sharia studies are most welcome, including people from Darul Ulooms and so forth, so that they apply what they studied to Islamic education, management of a mosque, uh, issues of counseling and so forth, issues that are applied mm-hmm. but are extended through their uh, through their knowledge, inshallah. Okay, so so that's that's really important. Of course, if people want to apply, uh, and uh, I believe of course they need an undergraduate degree for that and, and, and a bachelor's and honors at that, uh, you can indeed apply either at IPSA, which is of course the International Peace College of South Africa at the corner of Johnson and Dane Road in Rylands, state next to the Habibia Masjid. Uh, or, of course, you can apply online or email them at info at ipsa-edu.org. That's info at ipsa-edu.org. That's www.ipsa-edu.org. And, indeed, during office hours, you can phone 021-638-1121 or 021-638-7932. If you're interested in learning more about that, of course, you can find all of the details online. Um, and uh, talking about the example that you mentioned here, you said an Islamic economy, a country run by an Islamic economy. But now the, the question would be, what jurisprudence would be used in that economy? How do we set it up? What are the ahkam? And that's really a question that I really wanted to ask you from your understanding, because you've written uh, many works, both in Arabic and English, and many people have benefited. And there's also been critiques of your work with regards to how to actually apply those ahkam that have been formulated within the traditional schools of thought, the madhaib, uh, in the past over a thousand years. 
how to actually apply that today or do we come within a new approach completely uh, which one may call it a maqasidi approach these are some words some, some some of our listeners may not understand perhaps if you can just introduce madhabs uh, usul and of course the maqasidi approach and how to apply fiqh in the 21st century i'll give you some time because that's gonna be no exactly khair. No, this is a very good question and it's actually a very good example because there is a lot that is written on islamic economics in the islamic thought uh, these days and the um, what is written there is one of two things has to do with the history of the islamic jurisprudence in dealing with al-mu'amalat al-maliyya or the yes. financial dealings um, or the contemporary dealings of the financial dealings or mu'amalat al-maliyya mm. um, this is mostly micro uh, but what we need today for islam to contribute to betterment uh, of of the current economic systems then we need islam on the macro level Islam on the macro level is not found in the books of history of fiqh um, because the books of history of fiqh did not deal with the same reality, not because they're invalid or wrong or anything, they were great. And every student of knowledge, if we're going to talk pedagogically, has to learn them and has to familiarize him or herself with the history of our fiqh. But there is a difference between the history of fiqh and fiqh. Fiqh is how to apply al-wahi the revelation, Al-Kitab Wa-Sunnah, to the reality, so that uh, you, ha- you, you come up with ahkam, or the faqih obviously, comes up with ahkam that suits the reality. How can you have ahkam on today's, let's say, monopoly? Our systems today in economics mm. are very monopolistic. Yes. Uh, the 1% everywhere in every country and worldwide are becoming very big and very imbalanced in terms of the amount of wealth they amass versus the people. Yes, in Islam, we have rich and poor, but we are not supposed in Islam to have a few people, a few dozen people, let's say, owning 90% of the economy of a particular country, while half of that country, or let's say one third, are are literally hungry. That is not Islamic. So how can we do this is to come up with not, as you mentioned, totally new fiqh. It's actually in light of what we learn from the history of fiqh. But it is new in the sense of application. When we talk about, about a bank, when we talk about even the currencies, those, those you know, monetary values that we give to those papers, this is, not, this is different from the dinar and dirham, and this is different from al-falus that we had in, in previous uh, fiqh ijtihad. And this is very different. We, we should learn about the past. But the fuqaha should um, endeavor to address the current topics. Uh, so that's, for example, an introduction to... Yeah, so for example, in, in addressing the practical challenges of modernity, uh, one question actually sent me a message you're asking. Um, in, in addressing those practical challenges and also to remain relevant, would the evolution of fiqh involve uh, major developments within existing madhaib or the gradual uh, establishment of altogether new madhaib? Uh, What is it? And also, or is it a more widespread uh, and creative application that works across existing madhaib? Can you explain that? Well, I think it would be very useful to read about the history of the madhaib um, because the history of the madhaib uh, would give us a 
part of the definition of the madhahib. Islam, by definition, is not divided into madhahib. Islamic law is, yes, al-fiqh al-islami in its evolution ended up being divided into the four usual madhhabs and then a few others for uh, minorities or other sects or other uh, madhahib, I call them, not necessarily uh, firaq. But, but these madhahib are the history of our fiqh. Um, can you be Shafi'i today? Uh, yes, in terms of the usul, but not in terms of the furu'ah. Mm. You, can, you can take the methodology that the Shafi'iyah had developed um, but bear in mind, though, that the methodology that the Shafi'iyah had developed, once you get into the reality of today, some basic articles of this methodology will be challenged. If you're talking about ijma', for example, how can you judge ijma' today when you deal with issues of today's banks or today's markets or today's psychology or today's issue where, where you need new ahkam? There is no ijma' here. And when you do qiyas, Bear in mind that the illa that is mentioned in the previous uh, ishtihad in our history had some sort of indabat in it, or what's called in English exactness, I guess, because there are similarities in the currencies, uh, in the markets, in how the people approach things, in, in even the culture of um, you know, social dealings and so forth. But now the culture is very different. We live on a very different planet. So the illa is not going to be mandabit or exact. I'm talking about mu'amilat, obviously. I'm not talking about the prayer, the zakah and the salah and hajj. The zakah and most of its uh, issues and the salah and hajj and so forth. And ahkam al-haram wal-halal. And Allah forbid, you know, al-khamru wal-zina wal-qatl and all of the haram that we are not supposed. All of this is fixed. All of the, I'm not talking about ishtihad there, obviously. Otherwise, yeah. then we're talking about something else, else other than Islam. We're talking about the ishtihad in Islam in the non-fixed matter in the matters that are by definition variable with the change in time. And therefore, because they are variable with the change in time, the big question is, how can we do that? Uh, take usul al-shafi'iyah, take usul al-ahnaf, that is fine. But you will be challenged, and what I write in my, my humble books about, as you mentioned, is how the maqasid challenge that. Uh, why? Because once you think about the why and the objective and the maqasid and the hikmah, mm. it's going to um, put pressure Yes. on the traditional methodology or the traditional usul so that uh, it kind of rises to the challenge of the complication of today. Um, and uh, I mean, this is a bit of an academic topic, but inshallah, hopefully this is useful, inshallah. Alhamdulillah, and uh, I, mean, I hope that uh, the listeners are benefiting from those, especially those who have a uh, background in the particular topic. We'll take a quick break and when we come back, we'll continue with the conversation with Dr. Jasir Auda. The Voice of the Cape. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to the voice of the millennials and we are speaking to of course the chair of Islamic, Islamic thought at uh, IPSA and of course uh, they are running the new masters uh, um, 
master's program which is um, applied Islamic thought and if you'd like to uh, find out more you can of course visit the website www.ipsa-edu.org we're speaking about uh, fiqh and jurisprudence which is jurisprudence in the 21st century now Dr. Jasser if you could just clarify uh, your understanding uh, a little bit more uh, of the relationship and the, the the relationship in the future from now on you know uh, into the future of between the study of usul al-fiqh and maqasir al-sharia how do you place the two in 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 relation to the other well i think that the usul al-fiqh in its current studies uh, have to develop um, and learn from the branch of knowledge that's been developing uh, in its own which is maqasid or ilm al-maqasid um, I, I'm not a, a fan of merging them into one. And the whole debate about um, whether they should be merged or not, I'm, I don't think that this debate is useful. But I think that uh, the usul means the methodology of creating fiqh today, the manhajiyya, uh, the theory, the nazariya of fiqh for today has to benefit from nazariyatul maqasid or the theory of maqasid. Because the theories of maqasid uh, add a uh, holistic and integrative and let's say futuristic kind of dimension that is most needed for the fiqh of today and might not have been needed for the fiqh of the past that's dealing with individual questions and issues and so on. We're facing major uh, challenges today as an ummah on a number of fronts and we have to have a holistic methodology, a kind of a, uh, a, a, a framework that is a bit more sophisticated than the framework of Qiyas or Istihsan and so forth that is not, in my opinion, capable of dealing with the sophistication of the questions of today. Um, the questions of today, when you see what's happening now with the genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, the social media and what it's doing in the culture of the world, the fiqhi questions that arise are very complex. Yes. And being a member of a few fiqh councils, sometimes our asatidah and mashayikh, with all due respect to them, because they haven't ventured into other branches of knowledge, because they don't have uh, serious learning in other uh, branches of knowledge like financing or engineering or science, they sometimes cannot comprehend the complexity of the question uh, and therefore not able to answer the question because the question is complex it's not just um, when we talk about genetic engineering for example it's not just about mixing the lineages and so on of course that's haram but it is about the bigger picture of where genetic engineering is taking humanity and the the not just the family side of it but the social and the economic and the let's say the psychological sides of the genetic engineering revolution that's happening now that is going to take humanity very far from the fitrah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. And hence the, the idea of al-fikri al-islami as a very important part of al-fiqh al-islami, uh, the Islamic thought for the Islamic law of today so that we can face the challenges perhaps more equipped uh, to meet the objectives. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, when it comes to these masail, such as, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and, and these uh, contemporary, uh, really complex challenges that were faced uh, by the Usuli Yun, and of course, they do answer, they do provide, some of them do provide answers after study, uh, and those answers may be um, critiqued, of course. 
who can who who is responsible and who what type of person is required you know, to answer these questions and and this is really in uh, what we study traditionally in the kitab al-waraqat for example the bab al-ijtihad what they call uh, independent uh, reasoning of course with great effort mm-hmm. uh, and there's a list of requirements that you must master yeah. you know the the, the sciences of um, the language nahu sarf balagha uh, you know, mant- uh, ad mantik, for example, you must Yeah, all of the usul, tafsir, al Quran, the ahkam, of course, the adilla, etc. Can anyone be a mujtahida? This is something that you're known to being yeah. being perhaps clarify that for us. Well, um, f- first of all, the the ishtihad, the requirements for ishtihad are still valid. That you have to know the Quran and Sunnah, you have to be very grounded in the Arabic language. And you ha- excuse me, you have to know the opinions of uh, other scholars and so forth. Yeah. But today we have to add to the requirements of ishtihad al ilmu bil the the understanding of the reality. And yes, that's, this was one of the conditions for ijtihad, read Ibn al-Qayyim, for example, or others. It's true, but today, the understanding of the reality is not just by asking around, like su'al al-nas, they yes. say, or su'al al-nisa, you go and ask women about this. Mm-hmm. No, there are issues, you cannot just go and ask a bunch of our sisters, uh, how do you feel this and that. Mm-hmm. It has to be medically assessed, it has to be assessed according to stats, yeah. and there is a methodology for these sciences. Now, who could do that? In my opinion, the faqih of today has to be multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. And this multidisciplinarity, not in everything, but oriented towards particular phenomena or particular areas. Mm. So I think that the faqih today, who is going to deal with financial issues, has to study financing seriously and some economics seriously. The faqih who is going to deal with the medical issues or the the medical uh, fatwa has to learn about medicine in a serious way. Maybe take a year or two or a degree um, and so forth, the faqih who deals with society has to learn a bit of sociology in order to understand how you measure the public opinion and how it works and the harm and the benefit and so forth. Now, how can you do that? Well, in the teaching curricula. I don't think, and again, being a member of some of the fiqh council, councils, I don't think it's enough to bring a what we call an expert in some of the councils. Mm-hmm. Um, we bring a doctor to give us 15, 20-minute presentation mm-hmm. on that new medical thing in transplantation, whatever. Yes. But the fuqaha around the table, including myself, mm-hmm. are not equipped to understand even the language of that faqih. Yes. Um, therefore, the mixing of the fuqaha of the the nas or the fuqaha of the sharia with the fuqaha of the experts uh, expertise mm. i don't think that this works uh, because of the lack of a common methodology that both groups uh, would have to embrace and a common understanding and i think that maqasid sharia could open that horizon mm. given the kind of common language it presents uh, between both groups mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a training in Maqasid al-Shari'ah would be part of that multidisciplinarity that a faqih, um, who is also an expert in the area of astronomy, let's say, mm-hmm. would be best qualified to tell us about the Hilal. Or a faqih who is also an expert in the area of family sciences and psychology and counseling would be the best to do that counseling. Versus another faqih who did not study counseling, which is now a big knowledge that has its tools and has its theories. And yes, some of them could be critiquable from an Islamic point of view. But at the end, somebody who is going to theorize 
or practice counseling, then has to learn some. And now your question about ishtihad, here comes the levels of ishtihad. Ishtihad is not one thing. There is ishtihad in the usul, in the theory itself of the uh, interpretation, the theory of interpretation. That is a level of ishtihad that requires scholars who spend decades of their lives oh. in a certain journey. And that is jihad of fatwa. You know, you apply the usul on a particular fatwa. That requires a scholar who is more junior, who actually uh, learned how to give fatwa based on knowledge that he did not create. It's just based on an applied knowledge. Yeah. But there is another level of ishtihad for every Muslim, yeah. which is the level of the realization of the fatwa in their lives. We tell him, you're going to make wudu with pure water. It is up to the Muslim or Muslimah to look at this and is this pure water? Is this good enough for me to make wudu in? To tell him that, well, brother, assess the harm and the benefit. Assess your health. Can you really fast? Um, and then they go to the doctor. The doctors divide over whether that person fasts or not. Yes. Uh, that is an ishtihad because they will do uh, what's called al-ishtihad al-tanzili or, or the, the tanzil al waqa the, the, the reality itself. Uh, is assessed by somebody in the field who is able to tell me, well, you know what, brother, I dealt with those addicts. And if you apply that fatwa that you totally cold turkey kind of take the addiction from them, mm. it's not going to work. They will die. That is an ishtihad that as a person who's going to give him fatwa, mm. I benefit from because he understands the reality, the medical issue, the psychological issue. It's interesting. So th those are the three levels. Um, Okay, let's take a quick break. Uh, I've got, got lots of questions in my mind, obviously, after listening to that. But and I'm sure the listeners do as well. Uh, please, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Jasser Oda. The Voice of the Cape. So, to Lel Fiat. Voice of the Millennials. With Yassin Kipi. Igniting the Youth. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to the voice of the millennials and we are still speaking to Dr. Jasser Ouda. Now Dr. Jasser, with regards to uh, the application of uh, what is known as Urf, uh, some people call Ada as well, the, 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 uh, the custom of people within a certain society. Um, if you can just explain that in regards to, to fiqh in our age, how do we relate that? Uh, because, I mean, um, this is maybe a, you know, not a very good example, but you get uh, some people in, within America, for example, if you, uh, if you don't shake the hand uh, of, a, of a woman, for example, you know, you get certain, even within our country, uh, it's seen as something completely, uh, you know, disrespectful, or if you, if you don't look in the eyes, but some other communities, even within our, our country, uh, you, that's not what they do. Not even religiously. That's just the, the custom, or they don't look at the, look at each other when they speak. Um, uh, just uh, perhaps enlighten us with regards to how we apply these particular urfi issues and perhaps bigger urfi issues as well when it comes to uh, jurisprudence in our age. Well, uh, I, I believe that jurisprudence in our age is not different from the jurisprudence of the past when it comes to the adat or the urf. And the basic maxim says that al-urf is mu'tabar, is something that you consider and is legitimate yeah. as long as it doesn't um, take you into the haram area, let's say. So if there is a dalil, if there is an evidence that something is haram, 
No ARF should change that. Uh, I mean, uh, I live in Canada these days. There is a lot of talk about basically what we call Islam zina uh, in in you know in its gay form or in any other form. Yes. And then some people are arguing that this is a urf that is developing. Okay. But no, that is not urf. That is haram. And this is not shaking the hands. Oh, it's a matter of difference of opinion. But it's uh, it's it is haram and halal proper, black and white. Clearly, yes. So you want to call zina. A, you know, some form of unity or whatever or companionship, mm. and you want to call this orf? No, the zina would remain zina for the rest of humanity's life. So, orf in that sense, in terms of a maxim, uh, is totally respected as long as we're not falling, Allah forbid, into anything haram. If it's a matter of gray area, of differences of opinion, and so on, then it becomes lighter. And, you know, somebody might take a madhab that's different from my madhab. I should tolerate that. And these issues of differences of opinion should not divide our society. And uh, as we were discussing in, in the break, when you study a madhab, that is not going to make you an enemy of somebody who is a follower of another madhab. Mm -hmm. Because that divides our ummah and that's haram. But to study a madhab in order to learn and somebody is studying a different madhab, that is absolutely fine. Alhamdulillah, this is diversity that we have in the history. Again, I, I underline the word of the history of the Islamic law. That is good. That's good to learn. Mm -hmm. um, yet, we, we should not make the ada change uh, our sharia, that the sharia in matters of halal and haram is fixed. Okay, that's that's brilliant. Um, now, just with regards to um, you know everything we've spoken about now, uh, it would be fascinating and just interesting. I'm interested in to understanding how you have reached this point in your life with the ideas that you've got. Perhaps just give us an insight into your background with regards to your personal studies and the development and uh, you know the growth that you've reached in order to get to this particular point where you um, have written the books that you have and, and the ideas that you've got. Well, subhanAllah, يعني, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I consider it to be a blessing uh, that my life, my, I mean my, my uh, academic life and my life of learning had taken me in so many streams of knowledge. Um, I, I have studied engineering uh, as much as I have studied uh, Sharia, uh, I mean, in the younger age. Uh, mm -hmm. And and I have, I have taught science, I have taught mathematics at some point in my life, as much as I taught Islamic law and Islamic thought mm -hmm. and, and so forth. My professorship, though, is in Islamic law, is in Sharia sciences anyway. Mm -hmm. And therefore, this is the branch of knowledge that I devoted most of my life to. But studying a number of, quote unquote, secular sciences, uh, in addition to, quote unquote, Islamic sciences, and because in Islam, we don't divide knowledge this way. You know, there is Islam in everything. Mm -hmm. But studying these in different uh, universities, East and West as well, alhamdulillah, and, and I taught in North America and I taught in Southeast Asia, etc. So all of this had given a, um, if, if I may say, a kind of wide scope when I, when I look at things. And understanding of a language uh, that sometimes people without that exposure of science. When I studied, I, I did part of the first PhD in, in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So studying neuroscience is a very different experience mm -hmm. from the other PhD I did in Islamic law. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it has a different methodology and a different approach. But neuroscience had given me a lot of insight on 
today's uh, scientific logic and experimental right. logic and yes. so on. Now I critique the positivists in some of their premises, and that is something else in the philosophy of science. Yes. But science itself, when you study it today, whether social sciences or natural sciences, it gives you an ability to think in a contemporary way, in a different way. Studying languages, when I first went to Canada, I spoke no English and no French. Okay. And then eventually I learned English and French. And that also, alhamdulillah, widened my sources of literature and reading and so forth. So if there is any advice from this trip anyway, which I'll ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive any shortcoming there, okay. is, is to seek knowledge. If you want to be a scholar and you want to seek knowledge, you have to give knowledge all yourself okay. so that knowledge can give you a little bit of itself, you know. Okay. And, and that is very important because we kind of lack, with all due respect, seriousness in Islamic scholarship yes. these days. Of course, we, I learned from many great scholars, and there are so many of them, including here in, in Cape Town in South Africa. I met so many very remarkable scholars and, and very, uh, you know, uh, intelligent and cultured people. Yeah. But in general, I'm saying that the Muslim talib al-ilm, you know, the student of knowledge, is quite narrow these days. And I don't think that talib al-ilm should study five or ten or hundred books. Talib al-ilm should always be in a learning journey. Uh, I remember the last visit to our Sheikh, Sheikh Yusuf Al-Qaradawi in Doha, now retired, 94. He still wakes up early in the morning with three or four books in front of him on his desk, reading until 3 p.m. He still does that mm -hmm. at 94. And that is Talib al-Ilm when we discussed. He said, I'm still Talib al-Ilm. Of course, I'm Talib al-Ilm. But the scholar who believes that he reached Al-ilm, khalas, he doesn't need to be a talib anymore, yeah. is, not, is not the right kind of scholar. Yeah. A scholar should be in a learning journey all their lives, even in, well into the 90s. So we'd like to thank you, of course, Shukran, so much for joining us and uh, wish you all the best with regards to, uh, of course, the master's program that you're running at IPSA. And if you'd, of course, like to learn more about that, uh, you can do so by contacting IPSA and emailing them at info at ipsa-edu.org or phoning them during office hours on 021 Dr. Jass, it's an honor. Shukran so much. And the honor is all best. And the pleasure. And jazakumullah khair. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and of course uh, we'll take a break now of course uh, soon will be the waqt of maghrib and then we'll come back after that inshallah assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa alaikum assalam